would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 15th chapter of John's Gospel, John chapter 15. Let me read in your hearing the first five verses. Our Lord Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes or he cleanses, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We began last week this new paragraph in John's Gospel in which we're introduced to agricultural metaphors that in reality are as old as creation itself. The narratives of Genesis 1 and 2 are filled with language of fruitfulness, language of trees, and language of gardeners, and of tilling of the soil, and all of the rest. God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Man was formed to be blessed in bearing fruit and multiplying. He was formed to tend the garden and to guard the garden. In other words, to keep out evil snakes that would come and invade God's creation blessing of the garden. Um, And to be sustained by the eating of the fruit-bearing trees and to be blessed in his own labors. And he was also sustained morally and spiritually by his communion with the God whose garden temple he was privileged to occupy and enjoy. And I say garden temple because in the ancient world you had kings that would put gardens next to their palaces and often temples. And uh, the picture really is the, the, the God who is king of the universe, the God who made all things, the true sovereign of heaven and earth, um, placed a garden in which he could dwell with man and man could dwell with him. He walked with the man in the cool of the day, we're told, in the book of Genesis. And so where God God is present, you have a temple. Uh, This was a temple scene in which worship was conducted uh, by the man and the woman made in the image and glory of God. And the tragedy of sin is that mankind became evicted from that Edenic scene, that paradise of the garden of delight. Actually, Eden means a delight, a delightful communion. He knew and enjoyed with God. He did in that intimacy that he had in Eden, he could enjoy no longer. And yet, God is a God who is not going to be waylaid in his will and his purposes by even something as tragic as human sin. God had not ceased in his purpose and plan for Edenic existence, paradise existence for his image bearers. 
He's bent upon seeing that evil serpent destroyed and the evil that he represents destroyed and his purpose of communion with mankind restored in a garden-like existence through the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And Israel's occupation in the land of Canaan was also, we're told, a venture of garden restoration in a land of plenty, a land flowing with milk and with honey. You have the picture before the occupation of the land of Canaan in the days of Abraham, where his nephew Lot looks upon the land of the Jordan and he calls it a land well watered like the garden of God. And then you have the picture in Isaiah chapter 50 when they're in Babylonian captivity and they're thinking in terms of the promise of God's restoration. And we're told in Isaiah 50 that God's going to make of the wilderness, this wilderness scene that they're in, in exile, to be like Eden, her desert, like the garden of God. So you have that repetition of the picture of the land of, of Canaan as a land of blessing. It's a land that was designed for mankind to fellowship with God in a temple that God himself commanded to be built, yes, but also that the nations would come to know the living and the true God and the blessing of Abraham would come to uh, the nations. And so Jesus' work of redemption is to be conceived of in terms of the restoration of a new creation. A new creation is pictured in the end of the book of Revelation to be something like a garden city. The new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from God. It has walls and gates of precious stones and jewels, kind of reminiscent of the precious stones we're told about in the book of Genesis that constituted life in Eden. We're also told there was a river running through. Actually, Eden had four rivers running through it. But you have the river of God running through the new heavens and the new earth flowing from the throne of God. And you have the tree of life. That comes into the picture again. In the new order of things, in the new heavens and new earth, there's a tree of life with 12 kinds of fruits yielding fruit each month with leaves that are for the healing of the nations. And so from creation to new creation, you have agricultural images. You have garden images. And it's no wonder that Jesus uses so many agricultural images in his teaching and in his parables. They're not just interesting stories and metaphors that uh, come from the uh, just the scenes around him, as often we think about the parables. You know, when you have Old Testament precedents, uh, you can pretty much get, uh, uh, guarantee that um, Jesus is considering Old Testament truth. He's considering things that the scriptures themselves tell us um, about that help us to understand and define his work. And so in this final of the seven I am statements that are scattered through John's gospel, Jesus comes to speak of vines, vine dressers, actually gardener, branches. He speaks about pruning. He speaks about fruitfulness. And all of this indicates the work he has come into the world to do to restore the garden, to restore the conditions that were lost through sin, to bring back to humanity fallen in sin, access to God, conditions of living before the presence of God, living in intimacy and communion with God, conditions of the joyful service and 
prosperity and bearing fruit for the glory of God. Jesus is the vine. He is the fruit-bearing tree through whom the paradise of God is restored. And he says he's the true vine. In other words, he's not the failed vine that we read about that Israel was when God planted a vine in Canaan. That vine that did not bear fruit. God expected good fruit to be born. And yet it was wild fruit. It was not righteousness and joy and peace, but there was conflict. There was oppression. There was unfaithfulness. There was idolatry. There was sin of every sort. And Jesus' death and resurrection comes to restore order to the fallen creation of God, to usher in a new creation that God gives to all who come to him through faith in his Son. Jesus says, I am the vine. Unless we think that the work of Christ for us is something of a Jesus-only movement, something of a Jesus movement that uh, is basically centered in the Son of God exclusively, uh, the work of the triune God is brought into focus in our Lord's words. But so our Lord goes on to say, not only that he is divine, but he says, my father is the vine dresser. We would think in terms of a wine grower. Somebody that plants a vineyard, somebody that's looking to see a bumper crop of grapes that are grown and uh, that the uh, wine uh, would be pressed and uh, would be um, fruit that would be born. So the father is the one that is pictured often in Jesus' parables as the one who owns the vineyard. In fact, the Old Testament pictures him in that way. In Isaiah chapter 5, we saw last week. Um, he's the one who designs the vineyard. He's the one who oversees every aspect of the work of the vineyard. And Jesus defines the special work of the Father as being that which oversees the good of the, of the vine and the good of the branches. It pictures him in terms of this gardener, this vine dresser. Um, again, the word itself is a general word that can speak of a gardener. Which is always interesting because in the resurrection account, it's Mary that confuses Jesus with the gardener in another scene that takes place in the garden. It's always interesting to see how these themes repeat themselves in the scriptures. But the work of Jesus and the work of the Father are not at cross purposes. They're the work of the God whose operations are in sync with one another, whose um, carrying out a work of shared commitment to do the things that um, the triune God, his purpose would be done with regard to the well-being of the people he calls into fellowship with himself. And so the Father has that special work, we're told, of overseeing the health and well-being of the branches. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And so the Father's work of overseeing the vineyard, overseeing the vine, overseeing the health and well-being of the vine, is especially focused upon uh, the branches. The branches are those who profess faith in the gospel. Branch in me. Branch that confesses faith in Christ. That says, I 
look to Christ and I trust Christ and I, by faith, I'm joined to Christ in a life union. This is a picture of union. This is the branch uh, is in the tree and cannot uh, bear fruit if it's separated from the tree. So uh, we bear fruit as we are in him. We abide in him. Fruit bearing is the norm for the professed believer in Jesus. All who are truly attached to the vine as a branch is attached to a tree uh, is to be a fruit bearing branch. Every branch in me should bear fruit. Yet the reality is there are some who profess faith in Christ that do not bear fruit. Again, Jesus gives a parable of the soils in which the seed is sown into soils. And in the case of the stony ground hearer, the stony ground hearer, it says, believes for a time. But afterward, when the sun comes out, it's withered away because it has no depth. It's in a surface place within the soil, and it has no place to to spread out its branch, it, it spread out its roots. And Jesus likens that unto the person who hears the word and believes for a time and rejoices for a time. And then when tribulation and persecution and troubles come for the sake of the gospel, they fall away. But then he says that those that are upon good soil bear fruit. That's what they do. They bear fruit. Different degrees of fruit, some 60-fold, some 80-fold, some 100-fold. But all who are true believers are to bear fruit. And the absence of fruit is a sure indication that there's no genuineness of faith. And so Jesus says, every branch in me that does does not bear fruit, there are the stony ground hearers. There are those who believe in the midst of thorns and the things of this life uh, press in and, uh, and, and smother the ability of the, of the fruit to, to, to grow. And so there are such things as those who have a faith. It is a temporary faith. It's a faith that's not rooted in Christ with any measure of reality and depth. And when that's apparent, the concern of the Father is to take that branch away. He removes it. Takes out the pruning knife and eliminates the branch. Why? Because the branch could be toxic that's not rooted in Christ. That could poison the well-being of the vine. It's unhealthy and it's a danger to the vine. It's a danger of hypocrites in the church. People live in double lives in the church. Sin being tolerated within the church. God's in the business of weeding out the branches that do not bear fruit. Now sometimes he does it by death. When Paul treats the subject of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, for this cause, and so those who do not discern the body of Jesus, he says, for this cause, some of you are weak and sickly among you, and some have died. Some have died. God's so concerned with the purity of his church, the health of his church, the well-being of his church, he takes dangerous people out, even by death. And again, we don't use that as a threat to anybody. I know preachers that do it, 
But just in the providence of God, you have the Ananiases and Sapphiras. They come in the midst of the people of God. And in part, they lie to God. They lie to the people of God. They lie to the Holy Spirit. And God is a God who is concerned that those people be removed. More ordinarily, it's done by the fact that the church heeds the call to engage in corrective discipline of its members. To make some who once were among us and received as believers, because they will not heed heed the church, when interpersonal problems come up and you can't get it right with other believers, and instead you want to live at war with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you want to demean one another and disrespect one another, and you want the meetings of the church to be in the midst of tension and hostility, and you're pleased with that because you're venting your own anger, and you won't get it right with a brother who reaches out to you and says, I want to be at peace. And you can't get this thing reconciled. And two or three others come. And it can't be reconciled. And the church comes and says, Brother, you need to be reconciled to your brothers. This gospel is a gospel of reconciliation. You need to get reconciled. And they're still refusing. It's at that point, Jesus says, Let that person be unto you as an unbeliever, as a Gentile, and as a publican. That doesn't mean, doesn't mean to throw stones at them. doesn't mean to be hostile towards them. It means you don't give them the distinctive recognition you would give to someone who you believe to be a genuine Christian until repentance is born. And fruit is born to God through repentance. Corrective discipline is not because we hate, we hate people. Corrective discipline is because we love people. And we love the church. And we love its well-being. And we love its purity. We know that sometimes it's the social pressure that's brought by the, the many that brings people who are reluctant to do what they need to do before God to get right with God, to get real with God, to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. Paul speaks about the man who was engaging in sexual activity that wasn't even done among the Gentiles. And he says what you need to be doing is you need to separate that man from among you. You need to deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit would be saved. Again, the end of that is a good end that the spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The delivering him over to Satan is putting him outside into Satan's realm where he reigns and governs, which is not the church. Satan does not reign in the church. Christ reigns in his church. They can't be members of the church if they're engaging in those patterns of conduct that not even the Gentiles give themselves over to. God's concerned with the poisonous branches that occupy the church, that they would not do their noxious work, that they would not be influencing others in an evil way that the church would be pure so he separates people through discipline he separates people by death he separates people by simple departure simple departure people realize they don't belong among the people who are considered who are um, concerned about spiritual things concerned about the eye of God concerned about truth they don't want their sins uncovered John speaks that they went out from among us. 
but they were not of us. They were now from among us to make it evident that they were not of us. See, the owner of the vineyard, the gardener, the vine dresser, is determined that the vine will be remain will remain healthy, will have an ability to bear fruit. Every branch that does not bear fruit. He cuts away. He takes away. But then there's other branches that do bear fruit. That's the Christian. That's the normal Christian life that we are fruit bearing. And yet, you know, when you see the signs that a harvest is being developed that's good that doesn't mean you leave it alone I mean the corn out here I think they pretty much can leave it alone it grows on its own I don't think the same thing is true with a, uh, a vineyard there needs to be greater attention that the vine, vineyard uh, owner gives to the health of the grapes that it might bear fruit and so there are branches that are bearing fruit but yet also need to be pruned there needs to be the things in the vine itself that will hinder future growth that need to be taken away. That greater fruit would be born in the future. And so every branch that does bear fruit, it says he prunes. Actually, the word is he cleanses. He cleanses that it may bear more fruit. And so the vine divine owner governs um, not only the church in his dealings with hypocrites, his dealings with false believers, but he oversees the lives of his people as well. Fruit-bearing branches are true believers. He continues to nurture them. Cutting back the parts that are useless, unprofitable, and detrimental to future growth. And future growth may be born, more fruit may be born to his glory. And normally this is done not so much in the way of corrective discipline, although sometimes that's necessary that even believers are disciplined and cut off from church fellowship until repentance is manifest. And that's our hope when corrective discipline is engaged in. But there's a more normal, formative discipline that the church is always involved in. That's what we're doing today. We're involved in the regular ministry of the word of God. Proclaiming it publicly. That believers might hear God's word. And be brought to deal with matters of life. That will lead to greater measures of spiritual growth. Did you know that? You're not here just to hear a preacher. Hear a message. Hear my opinions. Take in my understandings of what scripture says. We're here on an exercise of looking to achieve greater spiritual growth. Looking to bear fruit unto God. And the regular ministry of the word of God is designed to help to that end. That we would leave here this morning more determined to serve God. To live to the honor of Christ. To walk by the Spirit. To put off the practices that we're engaged in that are wrong and sinful and dishonoring to God and hurtful to ourselves 
and put them off. Now Jesus speaks about already being cleansed by the word. You see it in the words of verse 3? It is already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. The gospel itself brings cleansing. When we come to faith in Christ, we are cleansed from an evil conscience. We are cleansed from our sins. God purges away our guilt. And it's this very idea of cleansing that is the work that the vine dresser is doing. It's the very same word. It's translated prunes, but it really is cleanses. The Father is looking to cleanse us. And how are we cleansed? Well, we're cleansed by our confession of our sins, our keeping short accounts with God with respect to our sins. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? To cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. So back to the picture of the foot washing where Jesus says, you've already been made clean by the gospel and you have nothing else that you need except the daily washing of the feet. You know, if you've ever been clean, you've taken a bath. Again, we're living in the modern world where we all have good footwear. We have nice powders we place upon our feet to make them smell real good. But we were living in an ancient world in the ancient world and we came to church, you know, we would pick up muck and grime and the, the, the stuff on our feet that when we came into the church building, we would have to do something to get the odor to be taken away, to get the dirt to be knocked off and probably we'd have a foot washer here to help you do that. Or we provide some way you could wash your own feet. So we congregated together and we wouldn't be offensive to one another. And so there was the work of ministry to one another of cleansing people's feet. And Jesus uses that as an, as an example of how the Christian likes to be lived. The, the gospel is that once for all bath. is that washing of regeneration. The renewing of the Holy Spirit has already been done. And yet we walk through this world and there's all kinds of dirt we pick up. Daily guilt, daily sins we, are, we commit, daily failure to honor God and love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And just because we're Christians, that doesn't make these things right. You know, I mean, sin doesn't change its definition because we're in Christ. Sin is still sin. It brings dirt and muck. It needs to be cleansed on a daily basis. So the Father's doing the work of cleansing us through the regular ministry of the word that we hear publicly that deal, helps us to deal with the matters of life that we know are wrong and not useful to spiritual growth. But not only so. It's not only the public ministry of the word that helps us to come to that place of Repentance, the place of confession, that place of experiencing daily cleansing from our sin. Again, a daily prayer that we pray for daily bread. We pray what? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Purge us, Lord, of all of the sins of the, of, of the day that we are not even aware of, where we've offended you, we've offended others. Give us to put those things away. But he also uses us in one another's life as that great 
way of coming to grips with the reality of our sin. There's the old uh, poem of Robert Burns. Oh, this is in a, some Scottish dialect that he wrote it in. Something like, oh, the gift, the, the gift, of, I forget exactly how it goes, of, of, of grace to gee us, to see ourselves as others see us. Uh, although we were gifted to be able to see ourselves as others see us. We don't have that ability. We see ourselves in the mirror of the word we're told and we go our way and we forget what manner of people we are. But you know, when we walk among God's people, they don't forget. They see us in all of our true colors and they come oftentimes and are able to say, brother, sister, perhaps you aren't even aware of it. And you hope the people will do that. If I, if I, if I have a I don't know, when I ate this morning sitting on my tie today, I would not want it to remain there. I would hope before I came into the pulpit, someone would come up to me and say, you know, Pastor, you got this messy thing there on your tie. Maybe you ought to knock it off and look to rehabilitate the tie so when you get up to the pulpit, people aren't gawking at you. I would hope that you'd do that. But what about the moral gunk that's in our lives that you see and I don't? I'm not aware of it. I'm just not clear and sighted enough to see it, but you do. You see the way I've spoken to my wife that has been offensive. You say, wait a minute, that man's a pastor. What's he doing talking to his wife that way? He shouldn't be doing that. He's going to lose the respect of the congregation if he does that. I hope you would come or a committee of people would come or all of you would come and say, Pastor, stop that! That's your responsibility to me, to bring that to my attention. Where do I find that in the Bible? Hebrews 3 and verse 13 and 14, where the exhortation is given. To beware, lest in any one of us there's an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. We're to be concerned about the congregation, that any one of us would be departing from the living God. Well, what do you do? Do you wait for somebody to depart from the living God and say, brother, you need to come back to the living God. Well, the writer of Hebrews says, well, I got some preventive medicine, so you can actually do this before you actually get to the place where somebody leaves the church. Somebody departs from the living God. You can do this formative discipline among the brethren that's called exhorting one another day by day while it's called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So in other words, we love one another enough that we're not waiting for apostasies to come about and then we run after people and say, come back, come back. That even while people are here, we're ever encouraging one another. We're exhorting one another. It doesn't mean we're just reading people the riot act. It means we're really trying to give encouragement to people to walk with God, to live before the eye of Christ. We're motivating one another. Lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of our sins. Sin is a hardening factor. Our hearts become hardened. You know, when you don't deal with it right away. You get, you get into patterns. You get into habits. It's hard to kick a habit once it's already entrenched. Be far better to deal with it before it becomes a habit. We're to help one another in those very ways. Not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And again, that's how the Father works. The Father works in the cleansing of the garden, the cleansing of the branches of the vine, 
that is pure and healthy and free from blight and poisonous, vine-destroying influences of sin. And the way we heed and hear God's word as is publicly ministered. And the way we receive ministry from one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Encouraging one another daily while it's called today. Lest any one of us be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so these are the means the Father uses caring for the vineyard. This is a skillful hand at work. Tending his garden. Tending his vineyard. Tending his church. Tending to the branches. And their health. And well-being. He takes away the fruitless, unbelieving branches. Sometimes by death. Sometimes by discipline. Sometimes by departure. And he cleanses the remaining branches. Of all the diseases that would inhibit the production of good fruit. By instructing us, exhorting us. By the care we have for one another. Members building one another up in faith and in faithfulness. That's the hand of God at work in His church. That's why we need the church, folks. That's why we're not saved to go it alone. We're not saved to go off with our Bibles to some fishing creek to throw our line and enjoy the the beauty of the day. And say, this is my cathedral. We need the church. We need the fellowship of the people of God. We need the public instruction of the word of God. We need the brotherly care of one another. We need to walk with one another and before one another. And hold one another accountable. The Father's given us all the means that are needed. That his garden would be fruitful that this vine would bear fruit for God's glory before we conclude just a couple things a couple takeaways from the passage I want you to note that uh, Jesus honors his father in his exposition of what the Christian life is all about it's not just believe in me and believe I'm the vine and uh, your branches in me and grafted in me and that's all that's needed. He, he says, no, no, no. You can't think of your relationship to me and not think of the Father who is one with me and I am one with him. The Father who is the one who sent me into the world. The one who has ownership and supervision and oversight of the work of redemption. He has planted the vine by sending his son into the world. He plants the gospel in the world, in the field of the world, of which he is its proprietor. He is the owner. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And he works in the lives of those who come to him by faith in Jesus, through his word, to bring his people to greater and greater measures of fruitfulness and spiritual health and the service of our king and of his kingdom. Hence, you see, all glory and honor and praise should be given not only to the Son of God, but to the Father as well, as well as to the Holy Spirit. As Paul says, God has highly exalted Jesus in the work of his redemption, his dying for us, his rising for us, 
His obedience unto death, the death of the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him, given him the name that's above every name. But that's not all. But it's at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But that's not all. The all is to the glory of the Father. All of this would be done to the glory of the Father. All the works of the triune God are to the glory of the persons of the Trinity. All the persons of the Trinity. And so when you think of Jesus as divine, as the source of the life that we have in Him, of the tree of life that's planted in the garden of God, but let's not forget it's the garden of God. And see and notice that it's the God of all grace, the God who sent the Son into the world on a mission of mercy to, to lost and needy sinners, who is the one we look to, possessing the skill of managing the affairs of the salvation of his people, the way that they live their life in this world, as he wisely and ably tends his garden, cleanses the branches, and brings us to bear greater fruit of a righteous, of a harvest of righteousness, a harvest of peace, a harvest of love, a harvest of praise and glory to his own name. And then we need to value not only the Father as the one who is the gardener, but also the people of God who have a vital role in our spiritual well-being, of keeping us accountable to the word of God and to the will of God, of keeping us from letting sin harden our hearts. We should be thankful for pastors and teachers. We should be thankful for those that come alongside of us to help us in timely words of encouragement and guidance and sharing their life and experience with us that we may learn and have good models. We need to value one another in this work of God in pruning, cleansing the branches. And then let's just value the fact that, that God works in our lives through his word, through his people, that the stuff of our lives that would offend and, and inhibit our spiritual good, they would, they would be rooted out. I never knew how much I needed a surgeon to cut away the cataracts that were over my eyes. I thought, I knew it, I didn't see well, I knew I had to wear glasses, but I thought, well, you know, it's okay. I had no appreciation of the terrible lack of health of my eyesight until those cataracts were taken away, until they were removed. I started to sing one of the songs of my military life. You know, when the Lord saved me and brought me into the military, I wasn't listening to rock music. I was part of that generation. You burn all the rock music and you, you smash the, the records and the rest. I didn't actually do that. I think my mother took my record collection and she probably sold them. I never saw what happened to my, my record collection. But I wasn't listening to that stuff anyway. And then I'm in the military and all I hear is music constantly. Everybody's playing music in the barracks and you can't escape it. And I learned all those songs that were being played over and over and over again on the top 40 stations. And one of them was a song that says, I see clearly now the rain is gone. I see all obstacles in my way. Oh, the bright, bright, shiny day. And that's how I felt when the 
stuff was taken away from my eyes that were occluding my ability to see well. And what a wonderful thing it is as Christians to come to the realization we're just not seeing things as we should. We're not seeing reality as it should. We have an eye deformity. We have an eye problem. The disease has come and uh, taken away our spiritual sight. We should bless God for every means he uses to cleanse the eye from its inability to see, to deal with the heart problems that bring us not to love him supremely, not to put away the things that are idolatrous and hurtful and harmful to our well-being and to the well-being of his church. Let's not be unwilling subjects of the gracious acts of God through his word, through his spirit, through his people to bring us to greater awareness of the spiritual diseases of our heart and life. We want to grow, don't you? Don't you want to grow? Don't you want to bring greater fruitfulness to God in your life? May God give us grace to hear his word. So we've looked at this passage in terms of Christ divine. The Father is the gardener. What's left for us is the consideration of the branches. You see, the branches, that's us. And we're not just to be passive and inactive observers of the activity of God and of others. We're, we have an essential part to play, an essential part to play. And it's to that role that we play that we'll turn our attention to, God willing, next Lord's Day. Let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to Him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this very helpful metaphor that our Lord Jesus gives of the Christian life. And we're thankful that you are the God who does plant gardens, the God who does plant us in your garden, that we might walk with you and we might enjoy your fellowship and we might learn of you and we might together as your people be a people that bear fruit to your glory and to your praise. And we pray that everything that would uh, take care of the diseases of the soul, the diseases of the of, of the life of your people that would hinder fruitfulness, that they would be removed, they would be taken away. But Lord God, you would be pleased to so cultivate the vine, so cultivate the branches, that we would bear fruit to your glory more and more and more each and every day. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless your people as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.